it, it is some kind of, sometimes hard to think about it. So it's shocking to think about the person that I was when I was drinking like that. And it's, it's a relief to know that I don't have to be that person ever again. Ready? Let's do it. Okay. Welcome to the Recovery Edge cast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. And today I'm sitting here with my good friend Sean, who I've known several years. Um, we met at the uh, New Hope meeting in Firestone. That is Sean's cat. <laughs> I think your cat wants to introduce himself. <laughs> that The cat's name is Lee, and uh, I'm not sure if he's an alcoholic. He's never had a drink, so he's never activated the allergy. I'm <laughs> sure of it. <laughs> so why don't you tell me um, or let us know what your sober date is and where's your home group? Okay. Um, well, my name's Sean. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I've been sober since October 24th, 2011, and my home group is the New Hope Group in Firestone, Colorado. We meet in, on Friday nights at 7 o'clock. All right. Um, why don't you tell us what you're up to these days besides, you know, recovery? Um, well, do? so I, I guess what I'm up to, I... Um, uh, I'm working from home because of all the COVID chaos, starting to get used to that whole aspect of life and how to balance life and work again. And I've always had a <clears throat> pretty good uh, a pr- pretty good separation between my, my work life and my home life. So that is being violated right, right now by the whole COVID experience. Mm-hmm. And it's been a little bit difficult. There's been, you know, a little bit of de- depression involved there that I'm trying to work through, and it's uh, it's a new experience for me. So I'm I'm learning how to figure that out. Also trying to quit smoking. So if I am clearing my throat a lot or I sound kind of raspy, I apologize. Uh, my my lungs are starting to recover from 26 years of damage. So. That's uh, <laughs> been a fun experience. You can ask my wife how much fun that's really been. <laughs> so you've been like locked up at home and trying to quit smoking. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Coming up on three weeks for the cigarettes, so it's going all right. It's, yeah. <laughs> I'd almost rather quit drinking again. <laughs> yeah. I think Char needs a medal or something. She does. <laughs> Um, so cool. How did you grow up and where did you grow up? Oh, uh, I grew up in Louisville, Colorado for the most part. I was born, I'm a true Boulder native, born at Boulder Community Hospital and, uh, shortly thereafter moved to Louisville when I was about a year and a half, two years old. Typical, uh, suburban upbringing, you know, my, my mom and dad, uh, we're both there, and they didn't get divorced until I was 16. And I had one brother, ran track in high school and junior high school, got pretty decent grades until, you know, I was started drinking and smoking and stuff, and things went down pretty fast after that. But um, Did you start drinking in high school then? 
Yep. Actually, I, I started drinking and smoking. Actually, I started everything when I was 16. What okay. happened? How did your track career go after you started drinking? Uh, <laughs> did you still do good in track? I, I did okay. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't perform any better, but I didn't. It didn't start falling off real fast either. Like mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't improve. I only ask because, in my experience, my running went. Yeah, pretty fast. Yeah, my, and I my, couldn't figure it out. Like, why don't I care about winning anymore? <laughs> my dedication to the uh, to the sport definitely fell off pretty fast, but I was still able to maintain my times pretty well mm-hmm. somehow. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> Which uh, events did you do? Oh, I was a glutton for punishment. I did the four hundred and eight hundred races. Oh, too. Yeah, you were a four hundred guy and eight hundred. Oh my gosh! Everybody hated the eight hundred. Yeah, there, those were those were the painful ones because they were barely slower than the four hundred, but right. twice as long. You still had to sprint. Yeah, but you had to do it for eight hundred yards instead of a hundred of them. Yeah, but <laughs> this isn't my story, but. I did everything the coach told me because she was my science teacher, and I sucked at science, so I had to pass. <laughs> That's good motivation right there. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, my uh, our, our 400 coach made us do uh, extra practices until we threw up, and mm-hmm. I think we did pretty good for that. <laughs> so the first time you threw up in track, were they, were they like, you've, you've made it? Yes. Yeah, me it, too. That was a rite of passage. Yeah. <laughs> That's something else. That's awesome. All right. Well, I think you're pretty warmed up here now. Thanks for the uh, background. Sure. (laughs) Why don't you tell us what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today? Okay. Um, So, as I, you know, I guess I started really drinking and uh, doing a lot of drugs when I was 16. Uh, Although my my first drink, I remember, uh, is a few years before that. My parents told me I could have a glass of wine with Thanksgiving dinner, big family dinner, and you know all kinds of people everywhere. And they said you, I could have a glass of wine. Um, well, I didn't actually let that glass of wine go empty throughout the entire dinner. Uh, there was I probably wind up drinking about three or four glasses of wine that night, <coughs> and that was probably my first alcoholic drink. That's the first time I remember there not being enough booze on the planet to satisfy how much I wanted to drink. So I didn't actually drink for a few years after that. I didn't realize what that experience meant to me as much as it does now. I just thought, hey, that was kind of fun. I feel good. And I got away with it. Uh, nobody noticed since there was so much family going on that you know I kept filling my glass. So um, I guess I can probably I can safely say my first drink was an alcoholic drink. I, I never really drank to be social. I never drank to um, enjoy or relax like I guess what no- the way normal people do. Um, my drinking was always secret. It was always a um, way of forgetting about how much 
uh, I don't fit in. So when I when I was sixteen, <clears throat> I uh, I was a bit of a I was kind of a strange kid. I didn't really fit with any group, but I tried to fit with a lot of groups in high school. There's a there's a fairly clicky high school in Boulder. Um, you know, I, I ran I ran track, and so I. I Kind of hung out with those kids a little bit, but didn't really relate to them very well. Uh, I liked to skateboard, and you know, so I kind of hung out with those kids. I I dressed with like the goth crowd, and you know, listened to Nine Inch Nails, and you know, enjoyed punk and hung out with the punk kids. But I, so I, I could get along with a lot of these different groups of people, but I never really fit in with them. I was never part of the, the the real the real crew or the group it's just some kid that sat on the outside looking in so I guess you know a lot of my a lot of my drinking was a lot of my drugging was an attempt to I don't know maybe fit in but you know looking back on it it, it was more of a uh, a way to stop caring that I don't fit in you know, I, I didn't drink to to be social or get along with people. I I, I drank to forget that I don't. Were friend Were you making friends like this? Um. Not really. Um. There, I, I never had a lot of friends. I, I I get invited to some parties, kind of, but not really. Um, Yeah, the the people that I considered friends there was maybe four or five of them really that lasted as soon as I quit drinking and as soon as I didn't have a bag in my pocket to uh, coerce their friendship with, uh, they disappeared from my life pretty quickly. So how did your life um, evolve after you graduated high school then? Um, well, I... Wow, that's an interesting question. So, All right, let me be more specific. How did your drinking evolve after you graduated high school? Sure, that's a that's a good question. So, shortly after I, was, I graduated, my daughter was born. Um, I'm I'm part of that statistic, teen teen parent statistic, and I got in a little bit of trouble with the law. And there was uh, pot involved with that trouble. So due to probation requirements, I wasn't allowed to smoke weed anymore. So I was getting UAs. And for some reason, I don't know how this worked in the uh, parole officer's brain. They didn't really care if I drank. (laughs) So... For a good year there, so I, I drank quite a bit because I, I couldn't escape through my preferred means, which was drugs. Um, and I would, I'd also start going to college at Fort Lewis and Durango. So I was away from home. I was living off campus with a couple guys who were 21. And I, I just tore, tore one on for, you know, a, a solid, you know, two semesters at school, and needless to say, my grades were not good. <laughs> you know, I, I 
again, did not make any uh, good friends while I was there. And uh, I learned how to drink. You know, I learned how to uh, hide, you know, my, my feelings with booze as opposed to doing it with drugs this time. Um, a- after that experience, after I got out of trouble, um, you know, I went, went back to doing drugs and started running with a crowd that um, was doing a lot of coke and uh, meth and some of the harder stuff there. And I really liked those drugs. Those ones, those ones got me off pretty hard. So I actually stopped drinking for several years, um, mostly because I couldn't afford it. Because most all of the money that I made was spent on uh, crack and meth. Uh, it was funny. We actually had this great idea. Me and my my buddy were smoking a lot of crack, and we we knew this wasn't going well. <laughs> there was this little like thing in the back of our heads that said, smoking crack, you know, going down to Colfax and buying drugs down there, not really going to be a good way to spend the rest of our lives. So uh, we had this brilliant idea to quit smoking crack and just switch to meth because it was closer. We didn't have to drive to Colfax and it was cheaper. So <laughs> our brilliant plan <laughs> ended with uh, us smoking uh, crack and meth and <laughs> doing it a pretty regular basis. And, um, you know, that, that led to me living in a, a shithole little apartment. I think it was about 400 square foot in federal Heights. And, you know, I, I could score my drugs, you know, basically off my front doorstep. And, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was dying. I was dying quick. Um, I could see that death coming. So, how old were you at this point? <clears throat> this would have been about two thousand two, so twenty four. I want to say twenty four, twenty five. Holding a steady job. Uh, well, I was a waiter, so <laughs> I could find work pretty much anywhere I went, you know, waiters are, um, easily replaced and easily, you can find waiter jobs anywhere. Um, just so long as you can show up on time for your shift, you're, it's hard to get fired from those jobs. Huh. And a lot of times it's a good place to score the, score your drugs is from the line. So it was a good career for a meth head. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wasn't. I was actually starting to lose jobs at, at this point. Um, I had one friend, and he was the guy I did drugs with. Uh, I started stealing from my parents. Um, my my brother had to bail me out once because I loaned my car to somebody to go buy drugs, and they never showed up back to the crack house that we were at. <laughs> And my brother had to come bail me out at, you know, five o'clock in the morning. Uh, all kinds of bad stuff was starting to happen as a result of this. And, you know, I, I could see the, the writing on the wall. Uh, it was very clear uh, where that was all leading. So I, I called my dad and I told him what, what was going on. And he offered me a deal. And he said it was the last time he'd 
would offer this deal, but he said I could live with him free of rent and he would help, help me with my child support payments. The only requirement was that I go to school and I don't do drugs. And I said, okay. And so I lived in a, in a basement, unfinished, you know, um, not, not a, uh, Actually, uh, still an upgrade from where I was living. <laughs> Dingy basement, un- unpainted cement walls. It was it was a uh, you know highfalutin compared to where I was. <laughs> um, and I actually was fairly successful at that. I, I stopped doing drugs. I stopped uh, hanging with those people, and um, I went to school and I got a uh, associate's degree at community college and. Um, you know, I, I actually managed to control my drinking. I was still waiting tables while I was at school to, um, you know, help help pay my dad back for the child support and, you know, a few other bills that, you know, I had accrued. So, um, yeah, but I, I didn't really think about alcohol as something that I needed to be careful of. So I, I just started drinking. I didn't start drinking real hard, but... It was a couple beers a day. And, um, you know, throughout all that, I, I met a girl, and I liked her a lot, and I asked her to marry me. I had to do it three times because I was drunk every time I asked her to marry me, and I didn't remember her very well. <laughs> Luckily, she said uh, yes three times, and <laughs> we wound up getting married. Um she was a great girl. She's, you know, she was kind and uh, smart and had good family. And I got nothing bad to say about her, even though our marriage did not end well. She, uh, she put up with somebody who became a horribly um, verbally abusive person in the throes of their drinking. And I, I was not kind to her. I, I yeah, I, I don't blame her for leaving the way that she did. It, I, you know, of course, it's always not um, one-sided, but um, I, I couldn't see it going down any other way. Now I don't regret anything that about what went down between her and I. So. It's uh, it's brought me to the place I am now. It brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, from the time I met her until, you know, I found AA, my my drinking slowly progressed. Um, you know, I started hiding bottles. I started um, drinking more and more. I was drinking in the mornings to get rid of the ha- hangovers, so that when I went to work, I wouldn't look so bad. Um, You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it is some kind of, sometimes hard to think about it. So it's shocking to think about the person that I was when I was drinking like that. And it's, it's a relief to know that I don't have to be that person ever again. Um, at this point, had anybody else started noticing that your drinking was off the rails? 
Um, not anybody who had the courage to tell me. Your wife probably did. Yeah. Um, although I don't think she realized how much I was drinking. I actually, mm. you know, a lot of people say that they thought they were drinking, they were hiding their alcohol pretty well. You know, there there was clues that I was drinking pretty heavy, but I actually did do a pretty good job of hiding it from most of the people that I loved. Uh, my parents had no idea. Uh, my brother had no idea. My coworkers and employers had no idea. Um, I, I made amends to all of these people, and uh, when I told them how I was drinking and how it affected my ability to be an employee or a son or a brother, they were shocked as to how much I was drinking. So... <sighs> <laughs> So then, how did you, we can fast forward a little bit to when you were getting close to your bottom and started thinking about getting sober. Mm -hmm. I never thought about getting sober. I knew I was drinking a lot, but I had no desire uh, to quit. Uh, the only desire I had to quit was so that my wife would quit yelling at me. Um, you know, and mostly my interest in uh, quitting was to convince her that I had slowed down while still uh, hiding how much I actually wanted to drink. Um, it was, you know, I wanted to control her. I wanted to convince her that she needed to stay home and quit going. She was a musician, so I, I wanted to uh, stop her from hanging out the, with the music music crowd in Denver and going to these clubs all night to play and stay home with me. And so I tried to control her with promises of uh, staying sober. Um, you know the 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 end of my drinking, my I guess my bottom came when. I got laid off from a job that I loved. Um, my wife just stopped coming home. There was never a whole a big "I'm leaving you." It was just she just stopped coming home. Um, my job had given me severance, so I was still getting a regular paycheck, and it was a decent one at that. And so I basically had three months of nothing to do. Nobody to hold me accountable and uh, plenty of money to drink. Um, so that's what I did. And very quickly, I was drinking about a gallon of whiskey a day. Uh, I think I did that for probably close to a month. And... Uh, you know, I, I've always had a, a pretty good relationship with my parents. You know, I've always stayed in pretty good contact with them. They're they're my best friends to this day. And, uh, you know, I, I, throughout that month, I didn't really talk to my mom. And she started to worry. Um, and one night, a particularly bad uh, bender, I think I drank the... Uh, I got through that handle in about five hours. And 
I remember trying to uh, go to bed. I was sleeping on the couch at this point, even though there was nobody sleeping in my bed. Um, the couch was just more comfortable. And it was on ground floor, so I didn't have to go upstairs. <laughs> that was a deciding factor for sure, actually. Um. <laughs> Sounds logical to me. But yeah, so I... I uh, I couldn't manage the crawl from my garage to my couch. And that morning, apparently, my mom came over to figure out what the hell was going on. Mm -hmm. um, she couldn't wake me up. And this is all a story that I don't remember a whole lot of. This is coming from her. Uh, I wouldn't wake up. She thought I was dead. Mm. Um after some amount of time, I don't even know, she did manage to wake me up. And uh, I remember the pain that she was in. And I think that's when I, I truly realized that what I was doing needed to stop. That, you know, I was not just going to kill myself, but if I killed myself that way, it was going to kill my mother. It was going to kill my daughter. I let my mom look up AA meetings for me, and I picked one out of, out of the, off the computer screen, and I said I would go. And that's, that was my first AA meeting. Uh, it was October 14th, 2011. Unfortunately, that is not my sobriety date. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I went in one of my first meetings I heard somebody um, you, you hear a lot of stuff in AA that is from the book and you hear a lot of stuff in AA that is people's opinions and um, doesn't isn't necessarily part of the program we've integrated it as part of the program because some of these things work um, the thing that I heard does not necessarily work. <laughs> yeah, what what they said was uh, meeting makers make it, mm -hmm. um, and so you know my you know freshly sober brain said, oh, you know I just go to some meetings and you know I'll I'll get this thing. I'll stay sober. Cool. Well, that's a load of horseshit. <laughs> the meeting makers don't necessarily make it unless you get a sponsor unless you work the steps, unless you find a God that is bigger than you are and you form a relationship with that God. It doesn't matter how many meetings you go to. If you, if all the rest of that stuff is missing from your program, then you don't have shit. You just wasting an hour of your day and a dollar, <laughs> you know? I feel like you're talking about me. You know? Nah, I'm talking about me. <laughs> the first few years. <laughs> yeah. My, my, so, yeah, I learned that, you know, just going to a meeting and, you know, some of these meetings, all people wanted to talk about when there was a new person in the room was how much they drank. And I, I had just gotten out of one of those meetings where people were really excited to talk about how they finished drinking on vodka and how much vodka they drank and how they hid that vodka. And all it made me want to do was go out and, you know, hide some vodka <laughs> in my stomach. Mm. <laughs> and um, so I did. Um, 
And that was my last drink. It was a pint of whiskey in my garage. Nothing epic, nothing, <laughs> no harrowing stories. It was really pretty sad. I think I wound up, you know, busting the glass bottle on the cement when I was done because I was so, uh, I was so shocked at what I'd just done. I had, I, there was no reason for it. <laughs> So then what did you do next? I mean, you had a self-realization here, obviously. Um, well, I mean, other than, you know, crying myself to sleep, um, <laughs> I, I went to a meeting, you know. Like the I, next day must have been different. The, the next day, yeah, I mean, I I knew that... I I wasn't going I wasn't doing it right. I knew that there was something wrong with the way that I had approached Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I couldn't just show up and expect to receive this gift through osmosis. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that I hear in meetings a lot that that drives me a little bit crazy is uh, people tell you, tell the newcomer to look for similarities with the people around them. And mo- most newcomers, I think, take that to mean look for people who drink like they drink. And, and I think that's wrong. I don't think it, you know, how I drank did not make me an alcoholic. Having somebody else in the room that drank like me did not make me an alcoholic. If I spend my whole life looking for somebody who drank like I drank, I might not ever find them. And if that's what it takes to convince a newcomer that they're an alcoholic, then I've, I've told that person something wrong. When, when I hear somebody say, look for the similarities, I, I, I take that to mean look for the similarities in the people who are sober. And that's what I did that day when I went back was I looked around the room and there was happy people. There was people who were laughing, they were sober, they had years, decades of sobriety. <laughs> you know, I looked up to the guy who had 90 days of sobriety because that was an eternity to me. And I, and I looked at what those people did to get there. I looked what was similar in their stories. And they had sponsors, you know. Um, I knew this. I knew about this idea of God. I, I I believed in God, but I didn't realize how critical God was to my sobriety at that point. All I knew is there's people in these rooms that were happy. They had a sponsor, and that sponsor was going to do something regarding these twelve steps that were on a wall, and that's. That's as far as I could ration, and so that's what I did. The next day I sat down in a meeting. The guy who was sitting to my right is, uh, became my sponsor. The person who was sitting to my left became my best friend. And I latched onto those people like my life depended on it. Because it did. So then you started to do the work. Yeah. And were you seeing evidence that it was working for you at this point because you're, you're, you're finally starting to get some momentum 
at a certain time. Um, how did you stay in the moment, like encouraged? How did you get that faith to just keep going? To just stay sober? You're asking some good questions. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, you know, I haven't really thought about it that specifically. You know, it's that's why I like that question so much because I just threw myself into the middle of the herd, you know, and I did everything that I saw the people who were sober doing. They were hanging out with other sober people. They were working steps daily. They were going to meetings daily. They called their sponsors daily <laughs> you know when when i heard somebody with 20 years sobriety say i get on my knees every morning on my knees and pray i woke up the next morning and got on my knees and i prayed <laughs> you know it was a uh the the desperation was was so tangible that i was willing to try anything to to be sober and you know at, at this point I don't know what part of that recipe you know is is what's working it might be the whole you know the whole thing it might be little pieces of it I'm not going to change the recipe I don't want to find out you know I, I had I lived in so much fear before uh, Alcoholics Anonymous before finding my relationship with God that you know the only real fear that I have left now is a fear of not having that relationship with God anymore and I know the best way to destroy that is by drinking again so what is it like today um today's pretty awesome you know <laughs> I, Problems still happen, but they, they're they not as overwhelming as they used to be. You know, I, I'm i trying to quit smoking at night. I, I haven't been the uh, <laughs> beacon of joy <laughs> that I try to be. My wife will attest to that, but I, I can at least see when I'm, when I'm falling back into the you know, self-centered and that, you know, self-pitying way of thinking, you know, I can pull myself out of it quicker than I ever could before. You know, I, I, uh, it, part of my, part of my first step that was so hard for me was, you know, my, my life had become unmanageable, you know, cause when I, when I hit my bottom, I still had my house and my mortgage payments were on time and my car was paid for. And, you know, there there was, I'd lost my wife and my job, but other than that, I hadn't lost a lot of stuff. You know, my family still talked to me. My daughter still talked to me. And, you know, so I had to, had to figure out what unmanageability meant in my life. And it was a, an inability to manage my emotions. It was an inability to uh, show empathy to the people around me and care for them for the sake of caring for them only. <laughs> you know, I found it really easy to take care of and care for somebody when it meant I was going to get something out of it. 
but when it means just loving somebody and not getting anything out of it, I had no clue how to do that. Uh, you know, I know how to do that today. You know, and I, I know how to tell when my, my anger is starting to rise. And I can check that. I can tell when I have hurt somebody <laughs> and when to make that amends. You know, my, my life is manageable now. I can look at all these things that used to just completely baffle me. You know, people would totally, you know, how does it say it in the book? I'm so bad at quoting. You know, people would seemingly hurt, hurt us without provocation. But when we look back, we, we, we were the ones who probably stepped on their, their toes first. You know, I, I can see when those things are happening and I can avoid them most of the time. And I can, I can correct those situations when I don't avoid them. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it sounds trite, but I, I get to wake up every morning and I get to learn how to do this whole life thing a little better than I did yesterday. You know, it's, um, I, I didn't have that uh, privilege before. You know, and that is a privilege. That's not something that I just, I, I get because I exist. I have to, I have to earn that. I, I had to earn that. I don't know about other people, but that's not something that came to my life <laughs> normally. So it's, uh, it's something I try not to squander. What piece of advice would you give yourself on, or at least day one, Sean? Day one? <laughs> yeah. If you could talk to that guy. I don't know. You know, like I, I want to, I want to say I'd tell him to, you know, start to get a sponsor on that day. But if I'd gotten a sponsor that day, I wouldn't have learned that going to meetings was not, was, wasn't all it what meant, you know, and I, I unfortunately have to learn this shit the hard way. You know, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times my dad told me, don't drink like that. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> I think that's a piece of advice we were looking for. I know. <laughs> came from your dad. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times people told me things that I had to learn by, you know, spending four years of my life, you know, smoking a meth pipe. <laughs> like... <laughs> It, some of this shit is so obvious, but if I don't learn it the way that it came to me, it, it just doesn't sink in. Hmm. It really doesn't. <laughs> so it's, uh, I don't think I would have told that guy anything. I would have said congratulations. Thanks for sitting down and sharing your story with me today. Thanks for having me, man. This was really cool. Have you got any parting words? Pardon words of words. wisdom from Sean. <laughs> words of wisdom. That's um, <laughs> man. Don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Yes. <laughs> don't smoke cigarettes. That's all I got. <laughs> Thank you, man. You bet. Love you, brother. Love you. <laughs> Thanks, Sean, for sitting down and sharing your story with us. I'd like to remind everyone that you can find us at recoveryedgecast.com 
Also on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, iHeartRadio, wherever you like to enjoy your podcasts. Thanks for checking out episode 14 of the Recovery Edgecast, and we'll see you next time.